Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Welcome to The Fabric, a Lobby Capital podcast. I'm Buddy Arnheim, your host. And today we are privileged to have Carla Small join us. Carla, the founder and CEO of Early Bird. Welcome, Carla. Thank you, Buddy. Thrilled to be here. So fun. This is such a privilege. I'm so excited about this. Let's start with maybe a little overview of Early Bird. What are you working on right now? Sure. Early Bird is a tech platform that leverages AI, gamification, and cutting-edge brain science to predict and prevent reading struggles in children. We can identify whether a child will have issues with reading even before they learn to read. And in that window, that's so important because if you can help them early, if you can give them good instruction early, you can actually rewire the brain for reading success. Big, big, big mission. How did Early Bird emerge from your entrepreneurship goals? So I was running the accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital and a leading neuroscientist in the area of the brain science of reading, Dr. Nadine Gabb, came to us. She was on staff, a pediatric neurosurgeon at Boston Children's Hospital. She had done some foundational research that showed that she could do paper pencil assessments on children when they were in kindergarten. And then in second grade, her predictions were correct as to which children went on to have struggles. She came to the accelerator and said, I'm in schools all the time. I know that teachers need a tool like this, but they're hard and they're complicated. If we can gamify this, it could be a lot of fun. So we got a million dollars in family foundation funding, built out the technology, did the validation. This was one of 30 in my portfolio, but I was always very passionate about this because my youngest child, my third has dyslexia. So I knew all too well the journey, and this was really my passion project. So when it came time to kick the venture out, as we always do in the accelerator, and say, go out and get money and get leadership, I really couldn't leave it be. I had to go with it. So I co-founded it with the two scientists who were instrumental in launching early bird, Dr. Pesher and Dr. Gob. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to explore more of this journey. And obviously, we know a little bit about that as one of your financial backers. But before we delve deeper there, let's spin the, the clock back even further and let's learn a little bit about Carla and Carla's background. And so, Carla, where did you grow up? Are you a Boston native? I am not. I am a Southerner. I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, North Florida. University of Florida. Exactly. Gators. Go Gators. Great. And so you grew up in Florida. Tell us a little bit about your sort of your childhood in in Gainesville. We spent a lot of time outside. You know, I was very lucky. I had just a fantastic family, two older brothers and a father who was a physician and researcher, honestly, very entrepreneurial in his nature, probably 
misplaced in academia, although there's a lot of entrepreneurialism in academia, you need to be eternally optimistic and be willing to pivot. And that's sort of his specialty. At 90, he's still doing it. And a mother who led the child life, she initiated and led the child life program at the hospital in Gainesville for 30 years, uh, has her PhD. Did she have a medical background, PhD? She's a PhD in counseling. So, you know, really early on, probably my focus on sort of family focus and compassion, and then two older brothers. So, you know, it's interesting, you talk about sort of entrepreneurial traits. And it isn't until I was much older that I realized that as a crew, we were, we were risk takers, that was sort of embodied in who we all were. And it seemed natural to me that we were doing crazy things like swimming with alligators and flying to islands and doing research with my father. But that was just part and parcel of who we were. Did your two older brothers, did they go into the life sciences as well? One of my brothers, Peter, is a physician and also an entrepreneur. Now he's working as a chief medical officer in a startup. And then my other brother was actually in business, but very passionate about science and had done a lot of volunteering in his community on teaching kids about science. So clearly a lot of influence from the parents. You mentioned risk-taking and sort of an instinct for risk-taking. Where did that come from? When did you first acknowledge or recognize that maybe you had a higher tolerance for risk? (laughs) I mean, as I said, I I don't think I thought it was unusual. I sort of thought everyone was wired this way. You know, my dad had a sabbatical and we lived in Switzerland and they just pulled us out of school. We went to Switzerland. They sent us to public schools. We were all learning a foreign language and basic skills. I actually never went to fifth grade because that was the year that I was missing. And, you know, it was just sort of the nature of how it was. And I don't know. I don't think I ever acknowledged it. I think it just was... (laughs) natural to who we we all were. Great. You know, it's funny, I grew up in the Midwest, right outside Chicago, and uh, my father was just a very passionate duck hunter. Not necessarily politically correct out here in (laughs) Northern California, but nevertheless. And uh, when I got to the, the age where I could actually join him, he would grab me and I'd magically disappear from school October 1st, which was when duck season started. And uh, somewhere around October 15th, October 20th, the teachers would start asking if I was okay. And my mom would have to make up the excuse, oh, he's very sick, very sick. He's got a lot of illness. And then miraculously, somewhere in early uh, to mid-November, I'd reappear at school. That was sort of my junior high and high school. So I think the influence of our parents grabbing us, taking them under their wing and exposing us to things that we otherwise might not be exposed to in the typical school environment may have some influence on our curiosities. Absolutely. And, you know, both my dad and my mother were just amazing teachers. So everything was helping us learn, very much focused on you should be able to learn this on your own and independence. My dad thought you learned by being given responsibility in response to responsibility. So absolutely, I can relate to that. And we did spend a lot of time outdoors and that was something that was instilled in us as being very important as well as really giving back. I mean, a sense of fairness and a sense of volunteerism. Both of my parents were active in the community, giving back. You know, I worked through middle school, through high school. I was volunteering at camps for children with cancer, children with diabetes, just a real focus that you are given certain gifts, but it's really valuable and important to be sharing those more broadly. Yeah, on requirement. So education is clearly a strong influence on you. And in fact, you sort of came upon Early Bird through your educational involvement. Talk to us a little bit about, so you're in Gainesville, you're in elementary school, I assume junior high and high school as well. 
what kind of a student were you? What were the topics that were interesting to you? What did you gravitate towards? Yeah, well, I was a public school student straight through. I'm not sure that I would say that certain aspects of my education were particularly strong. There were certain weaknesses, I think, in the Florida school system and particular areas along the journey, especially when I went off to college and compared what I was learning to some of the others uh, that I was in college with. But you know what? I think there was such a reinforcement at home about good education. What I wasn't learning in school, I remember countless hours sitting next to my dad on the couch learning calculus and math that wasn't coming easily in school, and he was making sure that I was grasping it. So there was always a reinforcement that it was important. A lot of instilling confidence in us that we could be good at it even where we weren't. I was a very active participant in high school and again in college I was you know involved in different organizations and socially active and school was important to me. I don't think grades um, and sort of being top of my class was ever important to me really anywhere along the journey. I liked learning for learning's sake. I didn't go back to business school until I was out for 11 years. So for me, it really was a very conscious decision of there's content that I feel like I'm missing that I want to go back and get. So it was always ultimately sort of purposeful learning was was my most important tact. And I think I'm just slower than the rest of the world. It took me longer to realize that some of this stuff is really interesting and really important. Yeah, I don't think the slow thing. In fact, I will sort of kind of speculate a little bit. You had two older brothers, which suggests to me that A, you had a lot of protection, but probably also a lot of pressure, maybe a lot of competition. And so talk a little bit about, were they athletic? Were you athletic? Did they also push on you to do things that you might not otherwise have done? Oh, definitely. I knew how to wrestle before most people knew how to wrestle. (laughs) Yeah, they were bright, super accomplished, athletic. You know, I I swam all through high school, but I wouldn't say that I wasn't naturally an athlete. It would have felt more competitive, but Honestly, we had sort of a nice dynamic in my family where the boys were accomplished and I always had a deep relationship with my mother. So I always had sort of a special boy-girl thing going on, which never felt discriminatory. It just felt like we each had our sort of happy place, if you will. Right. Your best friend. Yeah. And by the way, I have a personal theory around competitive swimmers because I was one. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, the joy that I had around swimming was that it, it was very competitive, but it was mostly competitive with myself. Right? Mm-hmm. It's all about your own times. Yeah, it's nice to win the races and place, but really it's about your personal bests. And I think that has a str- at least the entrepreneurs and, and sort of other folks that I've worked with over the years that have a athletic background, swimming, running, you know, seem to have that kind of internal drive of success, which is, you know, kind of a tactful internal competition. So it's just a theory. Yeah, I don't disagree. I agree. But I also will say I didn't find team sports until I was an adult. I started playing ice hockey Mm. after my third child was born and I had taken some time off. So I was looking for something athletic to do that was more interesting than the gym. And I played ice hockey with a women's team called Mothers on Edge. That's great. (laughs) What's the logo? I'd love to see the logo over the team. It's a puck with your hair going crazy. <laughs> yep. But anyway, I, you know, from that, I really got to see the beauty and the fun of team sports. And that's what I hadn't had growing up, actually. I have visions of you, you know, checking and, and shoulder <laughs> slamming and all sorts of fun things now. I have a new impression of Carla. 
Are you still playing the ice hockey? I'm not. We had mostly time during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of ice time during the day. And uh, w- once I was working this hard, no. Yeah. What a fun sport. I do miss it, though. Yep. So that must have been one of the several things that you gleaned as you moved from Gainesville up to the sort of the eastern seaboard. As I recall, you graduated as a successful student and swimmer, and then you headed up to Dartmouth. Yeah, my mom had grown up in Quincy outside of Boston. Ah. And so uh, we had spent every summer up in New England. And so coming to the Northeast was a very natural thing. And my brother was already at Dartmouth when I was applying, one brother at Dartmouth, one at Princeton. So heading north seemed like a very natural thing. So once I was applying to colleges, most of the colleges I applied to were in the Northeast. Fantastic. And what did you study at Dartmouth? I studied policy studies, which is, you know, in retrospect, it's a little bit of a business degree in a way. It's sort of the study of policy making and sort of how to weigh the critical factors in deciding on how to make big decisions. And you graduated from Dartmouth, and then did you go down to Boston? What Give us a little visibility into that career path. Right. So after Dartmouth, I went to Chicago and worked for what at the time was a very large advertising agency, Leo Burnett, and worked there for about four years. It was a great Great opportunity. You know, that's back in the day, and I feel bad for these children that are students that are graduating now. There aren't that many training programs, but we had a really robust training program surrounded by people from all over the country who had, you know, equal interest in what we we're doing, but a lot of fun and uh, really learned the trade of, of marketing, sort of early, early days of marketing education and understanding the customer, working with creatives. It was a great four years. I think. What finally led me to move on is I didn't, at the end of the day, care that much if I was selling more Twix bars or more seats on United Airlines that I had to find some place where there was a deeper passion on my part for the end game, that the impact was something that I cared more about. Yeah. Before we jump into that, because that's a big topic and I want to make sure we hit on it hard, but we are seeing some really interesting dynamics right now. I mean, I think over the course of the pandemic, a lot of young people started or continued their career in a remote way, remote fashion, the idea of, you know, hey, let's go out for happy hour together with my colleagues just disappeared. And that informal mentorship of, you know, having somebody in the office that's a few years more experienced than you, helping you, being able to ask spontaneous questions or give you some unsolicited sort of guidance or input disappeared. And, and we're starting to see, at least in our portfolio, that many companies are moving towards a hybrid environment where they are requiring or at least encouraging their employees to come in two days, three days a week. You know, it, it is interesting to hear you talk about you know your first job out at a phenomenal advertising firm and the received of this mentorship, this sort of guidance. What do you think is likely to unfold over the next couple of years with workplace attendance and participation? I'm just curious what you're thinking. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, my children are sort of of that age where they and their peers are graduating and starting jobs. And it has been a hard couple of years for these kids. You know, we launched about three minutes before COVID started. And I had a line item for an office, but we're completely virtual. Employees that are younger, employees that are older, I would say there might be a difference of preference across that. But 
people now, in part because they took the job knowing that it was going to be remote, people are quite happy. We just had our company retreat last week and we're doing that regularly. The team sort of of their own started saying, hey, can we do some work bar or we work gatherings more frequently in between our retreats? So I do think it's sort of human nature to want to be together. On the other hand, nobody wants to commute five days a week. And I think what we all realized is that was just lost time, right? An hour each way, five days a week. That's just time that we don't need to be doing. We like the flexibility. People with families like to be home when their kids are coming home after school, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to see this interesting hybrid sort of solution that's in some ways positive because it's going to fit people's preferences a bit more. Easier for me to say, I don't have, you know, a a big building that I'm trying to force people back into, which I see a lot of that there's real estate that's being underutilized and companies are worried about that. I mean, I don't think it's all bad. I think there's some exciting solutions that are going to come out of this. It's interesting. How do you think about the mentoring? You know, some of the less experienced folks early in their career, how do you currently think about providing or rendering that mentoring that you enjoyed at Leo Burnett? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's really important to make sure that people are getting time with other people on the team and not all mentoring is coming just from those on your immediate team. And so we have to be quite purposeful of allowing for that sort of cross-functional interactions. And then, as I say, those sort of intermittent bringing people together is really important as well. Yeah, it's great that you're doing that. All right, so you've told, you sold a lot of Twix bars. You, got, you sort of earned. I, I ate a lot of Twix bars. <laughs> you helped in two ways. You both promoted them and consumed them. And after four years, you decided to go do something more meaningful. Where did you head next? You know, I like to say that my career has been one of intentional pivots and opportunistic leaps. And that was definitely a point of very intentional pivot. So, you know, I recognized that I liked working, I liked business. I wasn't focused on things that I was passionate about. And I just did a deep sort of self-assessment. And I said, what do I care about? What do I want to do? And oh, by the way, I wanted to be in New England. It's a community I like. So I realized that I really care about families and children. And I wanted to focus my work on that. And so I just started exploring what my options were. I worked half-time for a nonprofit and half-time for a for-profit The for-profit was sort of taking a leap in bringing me on because I didn't have the background. So that was sort of, they were hedging by having me work for a nonprofit in a field that was related to what they were doing. And then I ended up working full-time for that for-profit. And that was the startup that I worked at. It was called Work Family Directions. And it was a IBM spin-out. IBM recognized that really helping their employees balance work and family, help them find childcare, help them find elder care was important to everyone's well-being and productivity. And so they enabled this spin-out. It had started as service to them, but then enabled it to become a standalone startup spin-out. And I joined them when I was about their 12th employee. Interesting. Were you doing marketing? Was that sort of the... At the time, I was doing sales. And then I was doing marketing, then ultimately strategy and product development. And is that business still around? Is it still... It's an interesting, it created the field of work family, literally hadn't existed before then, which then became quite commoditized in time. Not a bad thing. Um, And so you see a lot of company provision services offering sort of childcare and elder care supports. They got acquired after I had left. You know, it's interesting. My wife works for a nonprofit 
it's called Pink Ribbon Girls, and they provide these ancillary services, these support services to women who are going through gynecological cancer. So it's not the therapy, it's not the chemotherapy, it's the how do you transport to the chemotherapy session? How do you get meals on the table for the family so that the patient can sort of just focus on her needs, her recovery? How do you get house cleaners to sort of take care of some things that really wear down the patient if they have to do it themselves? This idea of providing these ancillary services in order to help the recipient concentrate more on important things. In your employer's case, their job. Um, in my wife's nonprofit's case, it's their therapy. Really does make sense. that the, Remarkable how much stress and wear and tear these ancillary services end up uh, require or imposing when, when they have to be done in conjunction with or in parallel with the main task at hand. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And then it's interesting, it's sort of come back full circle now at Early Bird as we think about how to support families directly and we're having the same exact conversations. Great, great. So you were there for what appears to be several years and were you there then through the exit or what then transpired? I was there for about seven years and I watched it grow to a, a successful company. I think there were about 60 employees by the time I left. They were not yet moving towards exit, but I myself began to realize that I really wanted to go back to to business school, which is kind of funny because upon graduation, I thought that was probably the last thing I would do upon graduation from college. But I realized, one, I needed some business skills, things like finance and et cetera. But two, I really wanted to learn how to affect change. And that was something that I felt was going to be valuable through a business education. So at that point, We had a child at that time, so it was definitely a a family decision. My husband willing to to take this journey with me, and that's when I applied and ended up going to Harvard Business School. Yep. I think we've heard of Harvard. It's that little school in Iowa. Is that where that is? It's not on the West Coast. <laughs> you know, my uh, my middle daughter is considering grad school, and it's interesting. A lot of her friends have chosen not to go on to grad school. She's only a year out of Berkeley, but um, I'm curious if you felt like your MBA had a profound impact on your sort of postgraduate career, or how, how do you view? For those that are sort of thinking about business school, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think it's a tough decision now. There's so much opportunity for people without business degrees. I think when I went to business school, it was much more traditional that you would work for a few years. And then if you really want to be considered for that premier job, you had to have an MBA. I don't think that's the case anymore. There are way too many options that don't require it. So I think it's a tough decision. I don't think my experience is analogous to what most people are going through because, again, I had been out so long. But I will say it was instrumental, I would say, on a bunch of fronts. One, the content. I really learned a lot and that's why I went. There were certain courses that were important to me, certain things that I wanted to learn and I got that out of it. Two, obviously the network, which everyone says is important, but it's proven to be true again and again and again. You know, if I have a problem, if I'm contemplating something, if I'm thinking about it, if I just want to understand something that I don't understand more, I have just a tremendous network there. Three, I think for me, it allowed me to do another intentional pivot. And I had sort of been contemplating moving into healthcare. And post business school, I moved into healthcare. And that was an important pivot for me. I have this vision of a vortex finally pulling you into healthcare. After 13 years, it finally got you. And so let's talk about that because now we're getting sort of closer to the path of early birds founding. 
Yeah. So I worked for a healthcare consulting firm, Health Advances, post-graduation, which was a fantastic way to learn sort of consulting, right? The, the business of analyzing a problem, understanding what's important, figuring out what resources need to come to bear, working with senior management, affecting change, learning how to, you know, bring all the stakeholders along, all of those things that are so important. Such a great skill. I loved it. I loved the diversity of the work. You know, every day was different. I had a variety of clients and I really liked it. You know, when I was at HBS, I was the only mom in my class of 900. Wow. That's amazing. There were dads, there were there were a couple of moms, maybe one mom by the second year, but the first year was the only mom. And so it wasn't that I wasn't used to working and parenting, but after a couple of years in consulting, it's pretty demanding in terms of travel and, and workload. Hours. And-, and hours. I had my third child, and at that point I just said, you know, I certainly can do it, but it's the mind share that I want my mind share focused on home. So at that point, I ended up stepping away from work and being home for a couple of years focused on, I call it my community-centric period, because in the end, I was just as busy because I was doing various volunteer projects and working on, you know, overrides in my community and things like that. And that's when I realized, well, I'm probably just wired this way and I should probably go back to work. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it looks to me like you then became an entrepreneur, like this now was sort of the beginning of your entrepreneurial career. Yep. So I started my own consulting firm. It was sort of got pulled into it by various people sort of asking me to participate in some projects, realized it was interesting, great work, and uh, just a nice way to sort of combine balancing the family commitments that I wanted to make and the work that kept it interesting. Was that a big risk for you or was it sort of a you know, kind of an evolved, obvious path for you? Like, how did, What was your state of mind as you began that journey? I always felt like it would work out. You know, I think it is risky. I think it's risky to go off on your own, risky to leave a reputable consulting firm. But honestly, I always felt like it would work out. And it enabled me to see another breadth of customers. I actually thought I would always sort of find the project that I wanted to join. And I didn't. But it enabled me to sort of keep that balance, do interesting work And then at about 10 years in, I realized, you know what, this has been great, but this isn't what I want to do forever. And that's when I did another sort of step back and say, okay, well, what do I want to do? And at that point, I said it was either to go into a startup or to work in a hospital because I love hospitals. I grew up in that medical family and was in hospitals all the time. I just think they're just thriving, amazing places where magical things happen. And that's when I ended up going to work at Boston Children's Hospital. Neat. Was there a connection there or was it a client that sort of enabled you to break into Boston Children's? It was a wonderful networking story. I just started networking and somebody who had gone to Dartmouth, who I did not know, who I had a conversation with, called me four months later and said, we have an opening. Do you want to come on board? So as we unravel the sort of element of an entrepreneur's path, networking is clearly right near the top. And it's interesting, there are different personality types, right? And uh, I've yet to find one ideal personality type that sort of is the, the elite networker. There's, it's, it comes in all forms and flavors. Is it natural for you? Was that a natural thing for you to network and to sort of maintain, build and maintain these relationships with people? Yeah, I think I'm probably not as good at doing it on an ongoing basis, but I'm definitely good at thinking through, okay, when I have a situation, when I have a change that I want to make, who in my network are going to be useful? And I'm also 
really excited always to talk to anyone. So I do think that sort of the muscle of having those conversations is very natural for me. Yeah. It's not an intentional quid pro quo. It's just sort of the way that you operate. People have questions for you, you answer them. If you have questions, you reach out and you seek the answers. Absolutely. And I think what I've learned with all these pivots and and leaps is that people love to talk about what they do. It's really easy and fun to have those conversations. So I've never had anyone resist any of those conversations, nor have I resisted offering them. And, and I think lived experiences are fun to share, right? Absolutely. The case study method of learning. It's, it's by far the best. And, and so now we're at Boston Children's, which is an amazing institution. And for those listeners that have heard of the name of but don't know much about the organization. Can you just spend a couple minutes telling us a little bit more about Boston Children's and then I want to hear sort of your evolution of responsibilities there? Sure. I think, I don't know, I've lost count, but something like eight years in a row, U.S. News and World Report, number one pediatric hospital in the country, just above all in terms of just leading researchers, leading physicians, very smart, strategic approach to how to care for families. And I was really fortunate that... Sandy Fenwick, who was the CEO at the time, had decided to create the position of chief innovation officer, which had not existed in any hospital in the world before she created it. And this was before my time, but she really recognized, and it it came, it's an interesting story, but it came because they interviewed physicians and researchers and they said, you know, they were getting all this feedback as to what's going on. And those doctors said, I'd rather improve my next procedure than do that same procedure a thousand times again, right? It was really important to them to have continuous improvement. So Sandy recognized that and the board recognized that and they created this chief innovation officer position, which then enabled, you know, our whole team, what ultimately I joined to be the team to have resources and very strategic approach that was taken, that it's a tech building team. So when I was leading the accelerator, there were 80 people who were technologists and business people so that we could take the ideas of the doctors, nurses, and researchers and spin them out into viable options. And that is the accelerator's mission, right? It's internal ideas from the various resources at Boston Children's and then find a path for helping commercialize those that make sense to commercialize. It is, but what's interesting is we created this engine and then, you know, much credit goes to John Brownstein, who's current chief innovation officer. We're also taking in ideas from outside because the hospital has such expertise that they can lend in terms of what does tech look like when it works in a hospital? How does that work well? You know, what are the EHR systems and how do you integrate with them if you're a startup? So it's now taking in ideas from outside as well as spinning things out. Are there relationships with the local colleges there? I mean, Boston is chock full of amazing higher ed. Yeah, we did a good job of hiring, you know, students from Northeastern and things like that. And then, you know, certainly being able to work with the talent. But I will say, you know, we also, it was a really exciting place to work. So we were able to draw in some pretty amazing talent as well. Yeah. How do the ideas get vetted and how do they qualify for participation in the accelerator program? This was the fun part of my job because I was able to bring some of that consulting expertise and other things. So we created a whole process. 
You know, it's interesting. You don't often know what else is going on regarding to innovations. In science, they're constantly looking in at publications, but regarding innovation, they often don't know. In fact, one of the things that we did to sort of share the enthusiasm for innovation is we would have exhibits where we would have all of our innovators come and display their works. And we literally had two physicians sitting next to each other who shared an OR suite who never knew about each other's innovations. So we had a very thorough and positive process. So it's just too often that these academicians would write a grant and get rejected or not. And we didn't think that was constructive. So we brought them together in a room with basically sort of a 360 degree view of that idea, bringing in experts. So if it was an idea in, you know, emergency room admissions, we would bring in technologists, we would bring in physicians, we would bring in business people who had pertinent experience, and we would do an hour and a half long meeting with them and they would share their idea. Then we would, you know, review it and vet it. But we'd give them really good feedback and we'd say, you're not getting accepted, but here's why. Here's what you need to go do. And many times we heard this was the best thing they had ever applied to because it was such a positive process. Yeah, I'm going to point out a, a lesson for entrepreneurs there because it can be painful to look in the mirror, have the mirror held up and forced in a way that forces you to look into it. And yet what you just said tends to be the lion's share of the impressions post that sobering moment is, hey, I was forced to look objectively at what I'm doing and I got some really valuable feedback that may not have been what I wanted to hear, may not have been consistent with what I was thinking, but boy, oh boy, it's changed the guardrails. It's allowed a, a new level of design thinking. Absolutely. I mean, there were many times that people would come in and we'd say, that's a great idea, but there's a lot of them out there. You know, how are you differentiated? Or finding that we partnered. We had some great stories of taking their idea and partnering them with, with just the right connection so that they could actually have success. Yeah. Getting now to early bird. You've been at the accelerator for what, three or four years? Yeah, I think at about probably four years at that point. Yeah. At that point, and you've seen them dozens and dozens of opportunities, some that are very exciting, some that have gone on to be quite successful, others that may not have been as successful. It certainly, you know, tested the boundaries. Help us get inside Carla's head at this point. You're four plus in the accelerator, an amazing job, probably working with the level caliber of people that we all just dream of being involved with. You know, what was going on in your head that, and you alluded to it earlier, but I'm going to really te try to tease it out. What, what was going on in your head at that, that point in terms of your career? Yeah, that's a good question. I was excited about what we had built. I was excited about the success we were having. We had about 30 projects in the portfolio. I was really happy with the team. We had built a really nice team. I don't think I would say I was bored by any means because I was, things were going well and I'm, you know, that isn't sort of my nature to lose interest in what I'm working on. But when this project came along, it definitely became very quickly my favorite project. I mean, I can just take a minute to sort of introduce you to my youngest child. And basically the way it worked for Matthew and the way it works for so, so, so many parents and children is that, you know, he's four years old. He's super, super smart, active, has a massive vocabulary. He can debate philosophy with his brother. And I'm thinking like, we are good, right? This kid's going to go to school and it'll be fine. Although I will say there were some things that I noticed about how he was learning differently than his siblings. But then when he gets to school, you know, he's, he's not grasping it the way other kids are. He's not learning the alphabet. He's not learning to read. doesn't know his colors. Can't tie a shoe. That's sort of an interesting thing. And so 
that's just frustrating and hard as a parent. Keeping him interested in school is hard. So that journey I had been on prior to Dr. Gobb coming with early bird. And I just knew. So in Matthew's case, because we did have dyslexia in the family, I knew it was an issue. We got him a lot of tutoring, et cetera, when he was younger and really worked on it. He's a very successful college student now, very creative and talented in so many ways. But that just didn't seem right to me that because I knew and because I had the resources. So I've always had that concern that it shouldn't be that way. So having this in the portfolio, this was always my preferred or favorite project. And when it came time to spin it out, and we did a lot of work while it was in the accelerator, we had to get funding. It was a very complicated validation study. We ended up blending another researcher out of Florida Center for Reading Research, his research into it, which makes it just an exceptional product, but complicated. It was a lot of work and we just, we were all working on it hard because we believed in it. But then when it came time to spin it out, I literally interviewed about 25 people to be the CEO because I was convinced that it was time for it to go. I was getting pressure. We needed to push it out, kind of holding on too long because I cared so much about it. And that's when I just realized I was interviewing and interviewing. Then I just said, I can't let this go. This is too important to me. And then it's not an easy leap. You know, I had never been CEO before. And that's where I sort of turned back to my network of supporters and colleagues who basically, you know, reinforced this was the right thing to do, that passion and personal lived experience goes a long way. Goes a long way. To compensate for the other things that I wasn't bringing to the table. You know, there's so much to unravel there. First and foremost, as a parent as well, and as a reasonably high-achieving adult, it is very difficult to acknowledge any deficits in your children, right? So you came from a quasi-academic upbringing. Do you think that played a, a part in your ability to see and uh, ingest and accept the condition that Matthew was facing? I think you're right. And, you know, sadly, I've watched too many friends, family members, other people who are just not comfortable acknowledging it. And then nothing happens. And those children just, it goes year on year and nothing happens. It's really hard to watch. I think for me, my father's dyslexic. My niece is dyslexic. I knew that we had it in the family. I didn't actually know anything about the hereditability. It's like one in two chance if it's in your family that one of your children will have it. So, you know, at three, when he started, he could play with the boys across the street for six months and not tell me what their name was. He couldn't tell me when his birthday was. These weird things that just didn't make sense to me, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And yet I knew something was up. And that's when I sort of started grasping for straws, like talking to people and trying to find, you know, what resources would be helpful. And, you know, we'll talk more about it later, but that's my whole drive for early bird families because there's nothing out there for families. Let's dig into that right now. What were the resources that were available to you? How did you find those resources? And It's sad. You know, my neighbor had a tutor. I hired the same one. I have no idea to this day what she was doing with him and if it had anything to do with what he needed because now I know there's very specific instruction that's constructive for someone who has risk for dyslexia. And it was tortuous for him. You know, he didn't enjoy it, but it was just enough. But luckily, I had a good partnership with the school. He had a strong principal who believed in it, strong sort of, uh, you know, special education resources that were helpful to him. And he got really good support 
all through elementary school. And that that can be a battle. Not every family has that journey. No. When we were evaluating an investment in early bird, my partner David, who is on your board, shared with us that he's always been very open about his own dyslexia. But he shared with us that you know, early on, he had these kinds of struggles. This is, you know, pre-reading. And his mom, to her credit, was convinced that David was bright. And I will admit, he is incredibly bright. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and she saw these struggles and she just couldn't reconcile them. And so she's made it a point to work with David directly and really sort of, you know, help him find tools and processes that helped him learn. I don't know if at that time she knew it was dyslexia or just that he needed to come up with different tools in order to accomplish these goals. And, you know, he says to this date that had he not had such a doting mother and a mother that was so attentive and willing to invest in him and willing to acknowledge that he might have learning differences, he would have fallen behind and he would not have been able to catch up. You know, it's interesting. Last week I was at the International Dyslexia Association Conference in Texas and so many moms came up to us in the booth telling this exact story and grown-ups telling the story about how their mother, sometimes father, was the one that really made a difference in their life. And many of those people are now specialists helping other children with dyslexia. And, you know, I feel like there's some fabulous stories to be told. I hope we tell them through Early Bird of behind every, you know, accomplished person with dyslexia is typically some huge advocate, maybe a teacher, maybe a mom, maybe a dad, but there's some beautiful stories because you know what? It's hard work. It's hard work for the parents. It's hard work for the kids. So let's talk about how, what Early Bird is doing to help catalyze those resources. Yeah. So give us an overview early on, but maybe delve a little deeper on the, on the current Early Bird product. It's been an exciting two years. It's only been two years. We're in 20 states. Uh, we have in our first market already 10% market share in the districts. It's just really important for us to have this in schools because that's where now there are 40 states that mandate that you screen for dyslexia in part because of a lot of parent advocacy of decoding dyslexia and other groups that have really worked to change this, which is super exciting because that's when we want to catch these kids is when they're young. So we're really doing well on the school's front. But as I said, on sort of on a personal note, for me, I've always thought it was important that we reach out and support families as well. I'll tell you our bigger vision, our dream, is that someday this is part of every four-year-old pediatric exam. We shouldn't be testing hearing and sight without knowing, you know, is that child going to be successful in school? And I'll tell you the, the downstream implications of untreated reading issues is pretty huge. These are children that go on, they feel stupid, they go on to have social and emotional issues, mental health issues, our incarceration rates for low literacy are insane. I think it's 75% of people in prison. It's just a downward spiral that we can prevent. And that's part of what really motivates us at Early Bird. The data shows that 95% of children should be reading on grade level. And today in fourth grade, it's one out of three. Wow, 33%. Yep. And really, that's the gap that we're all about. So on the school's front, we're there with a tool that's really easy to administer because it's a game. Children like to play. It's not painful. And then the teachers get this great data. On the home front, which we've just launched this summer, there's really nothing out there. So it's basically, you know, parents have sort of a series of questions. They want to know, is something up? What's up? If something's up, what is it specifically? And what do I do about it? And then how can I 
get the services and supports that I need to make this work. The interesting thing about Early Bird is because we're presenting, the child plays a game. It's just a fun tablet-based game. And it's for four-year-olds, so it's pre-reading. They can play it before they're literate. Pre-reading starts at four, goes up till next year we'll be up through third grade, so we can do the full spectrum. But yeah, it doesn't require reading. It's a fun game that they can play, mostly self-administered because we have you know AI voice recognition for scoring and things like that. So the child plays and we get this rich array of data that gives a very comprehensive profile of where the child has strengths and weaknesses on very foundational skills that are key for learning to read. What's great about that on the family's front is, you know, in school, we tend to talk a lot about risk because they're limited resources. They've got to focus on the kids who are going to be having troubles if we don't intervene early. When you talk to the families, you talk about the whole breadth. You're like, look at this, you know, your child, they may be having problems because they're you know, not really understanding how sounds and symbols correspond and how letters come together. But look at their vocabulary, so rich in vocabulary. And they really understand when you tell them stories. They may not read it, but when you tell them stories, they really understand it. So it tells, like in a positive way, we're able to tell you, this is your child's strengths, this is your child's weaknesses, and these are the things that can be done about it. So whether they're, you know, at severe risk or no risk, it's really just useful to understand what's the reading profile of your child. And Carla, what's the benchmark? So a young person can take this game evaluation and come up with a very rich sort of profile. Before that, or how would a parent get their child evaluated in that fashion? What other things were out there or are out there to help assess a child? Well, typically parents do what I did, which is you wait until they're old enough, which is typically when they're eight, first grade's pretty early, but it can be done second grade more typically. And you get what they call is a neuropsych, a neuropsychological evaluation that gives a comprehensive assessment and allows you to get a diagnosis of dyslexia if in fact that's the case or whatever the reading issue is. There's many things that drive reading issues, not just dyslexia. And early bird can detect any of them. The challenges with that is that depending on where you live, I just heard in California they're $11,000, and I was paying about $5,000 in Massachusetts. So they're expensive, and they're in demand. So there's typically a long waiting list, sometimes nine months that you have to wait to get them done. And it can be a full day or two half days or three half days to get this done. It's not a game. Certainly not a game, right? So there's nothing in between that comprehensive, expensive assessment and, you know, please help me understand if my child has an issue, has a risk, And it's science-based. I mean, this is based on two leading researchers in years and years of their foundational research and then three years of a validation study. So it's scientifically based. We're benchmarked against national demographically representative data. But it's something that you can access when they're four years old. And all the research will tell you how important it is because of the plasticity of the brain to get to them younger. We're actually rewiring the brain. And as I recall, they start reading in first grade and second grade. So by the time they're evaluated, they're already a step behind, quite a quite a big step behind their peers. Absolutely, and you know you learn to read, and then you read to learn. So if you if you haven't learned to read, you're now you're starting to miss out on everything. You can't do word problems in math. You're not capturing what the content of the lesson is in science. You know, it just compounds upon itself. It's really problematic. How did you start proliferating it in Massachusetts and then ultimately the 19 other states where it's it's currently being used? So we had validated it in 40 schools across the country. So there was already a lot of awareness. And Dr. Gab and Dr. Pesher are published 
honestly, there was a lot of pent-up demand. So our first go at this was to do some pilots in the winter of 21. So we launched in 2020, we built it out, we you know, took the platform that was research-based and rebuilt it for customer use. And then we were ready in January of that year to launch it. And we had hoped for about 20 schools. We ended up with a 45-school pilot. It's just there was so much pent-up demand. So much demand. And then there was a lot of positive feedback from that pilot. So those customers rolled over and then we were able to start selling it. So the on the school's front, it's just been a really nice sort of trajectory of people enthusiastic because this data is not available anywhere else in such a comprehensive nature. Fantastic. And now are you starting to see, hey, you know, school number one has been using it. They're very happy. They're referring it to their district. District is referring it to other districts. Is that sort of the modus right now? Yeah, we have states endorsing it so that they're sort of selling it across the districts in their state and a lot of evangelists out there, which is great. And so what's next as you look forward? You mentioned that there's now a diagnosis, there's a recommendation, and now there's some remediation services or tools. Talk a little bit about sort of what's on the horizon there. So we're very proud that the product is very science-based, but it's something that we take seriously. So we are adding second and third grade next year again, science-based, based on extensive studies. So that's going to be on our product team. They're going to be busy doing that in the next year. And the beauty of that is that we're pre-K through third, which allows for vertical integration and tracking of data. And early bird is done three times a year. So for parents, if you want to check in, parents that we tested, where we tested their children this summer, they're coming back to us and saying, it's the beginning of the school year. I need to show the teacher that you know where they are now. So early bird families is available as a subscription that you can buy for the year and get it three times a year, and then in the schools as well. So basically, on the product side, we're growing it out to third grade, and then on the school side, it's just growth. I'm just really trying to get into more districts across the country. And then the family side is just really fun. It's early days. We're still working on, you know, what exactly is it that families need? I know from all the research we've done, exactly the breadth of what they're doing. And then it's just a matter of sequencing what we're going to be offering to them along that journey. Yeah. And what parent would not want some recommendations and guidance on how to mitigate or remediate this condition that their child is dealing with? This is really about helping and empowering families to have all the information they need so they can easily interact with the schools, easily get the right tutoring. There's good tutoring out there and there's not good tutoring. There's appropriate skills that you need to be reinforcing and things you don't need to be reinforcing. So it's all about just being time efficient and really supportive of those families. And it's that insider knowledge that we're trying to really sort of popularize, if you will, through the service. Carol, if you had a magic wand, what are some of the external things that you would sort of shake your wand at to help further this mission? Yeah, I think on the school front, I wish I had a magic wand to relieve the stress and exhaustion of teachers right now. It's just hard. They've been through a lot with COVID. Introducing new things is hard. Even if they're excited about any new technology or any new innovation, it's just on top of everything else. They're just weary. On the other hand, I would say what's interesting slash sort of sad about COVID is it's brought awareness to parents and it's brought data to bear of, you know, these children, they're missing big swaths of their education and we don't know where they are. So that's where something like a game that a child can play in the first or second week of school that tells you where they are and their reading skills is so valuable. So it's 
proven that, you know, the format that we have is quite helpful for these teachers, but it's also hard. And I, you know, I wish I could erase the exhaustion and double their pay and, you know, all of the things to make a teacher's life easier. You know, on the home front, it's interesting. I think we're going to spend a lot of time understanding what resonates with parents. And you brought it up earlier, just sometimes it's hard for families to acknowledge that maybe something's going on. And I don't know until we do more work to what extent that might be a barrier to them being excited about something like early bird. And how do we help them understand that it's good news to find this out early? It's not a diagnosis. It's not a label. It's a, hey, you know, your gas tank is half full on this one and full full on that one. And we're just going to help you fill the tank before they get ready for kindergarten or first grade. You know, if I could wave a magic wand on that, I would love for every parent to really appreciate the value of knowing early what the child's reading profile looks like. I feel like our culture needs to understand that there are multiple ways and multiple types of learners out there, that it's not one size fits all. I mean, I think our academic system, at least my layman's impression is that it's been really, you know, the least common denominator, one size fits all. And yet I look at sort of the way I've learned and I look at the way my children have learned and the way my wife learns and they're all different. You know, some of us are sort of more visual, some of us are more auditory, some of us are more text. And I would like to see a broader acceptance of that, that there are different ways to learn. And this isn't a stigma, this is helping identify what's the best way for your child to learn and then providing that support system, the child and the folks that are supporting him or her or they to, you know, to learn in their best fashion. Yeah, I think schools have gotten a lot better about that. I think because there's now more and more emphasis on personalized learning. The challenge is we're all suffering from data overload, right? So, you know, one tool may tell you this profile and another tool will tell you this about their math. And, you know, these teachers are forced to aggregate all this data from different sources We've been really careful as we develop Early Bird and the the teacher interface or the literacy specialist interface to really make it elegant and not necessarily look like another ed tech product, but rather look like what is the best technology out there in the world and give just-in-time information. What do you need to know? How can you get it quickly in order to do what you need to do right now? And so we have these fantastic resources on the website that they literally are pointed to, again, to the point of personalized. If a child is weak in one area, the website will actually point you to those resources so that you can pull them up quite easily and prepare for your next interaction with that child. And that's the whole point of this, is to make the data turn into action with really easy-to-access resources. Phenomenal. You know, I'm going to sort of head us into the home stretch here a bit, Carla. We've learned a lot about you. Obviously, you're brilliant, and you have not only sort of ambition, but significant and palpable passion for this mission that you're on right now. This is a hard question, and, and I've asked it to other folks I've interviewed, but bear with me for a moment. Particularly hard for those who are modest, and I know that you are very modest, but share with us, if you can, what you think your entrepreneurial superpowers You've now been at this for a while. You've had an amazing career. You've done a whole bunch of really, really interesting, impactful things. You know, what are the three, four, ten? I don't know what number of characteristics that you sort of look at yourself and sort of say, "Hey, those—that's my arsenal right there." Hmm. Hard question, as you say. (laughs) You know, I would say that others I've worked with have said this, so I see what they're saying. Which is, I think I have an ability to take a lot of information, hearing from many different views, different perspectives, different inputs, different data, and sort of get to the crux of what the issue is. 
And I think you do that day in and day out, minute by minute as an entrepreneur. So that's one thing that, you know, I feel grateful that I don't know how it is. That's something that I can do, but I think that's something that I can do. And I think it is useful. I'm going to pivot the question a little bit, though, um, as we wind down and, and say, you know, recommendations for entrepreneurs, you know, that are sort of early in their career. What have you learned that, you, gosh, you wish somebody had told you coming out of Dartmouth or finishing at HBS? Yeah, it's hard work. It's a journey, but it's worth it if you care about what you're doing. One thing that I've sort of learned over the arc of a long life is that people come from different places with different comfort zones, different motivations, different lived experiences. And, you know, we're focusing a lot on that now as we talk about centering on equity, but it's always been the case. And that really shapes who we are. But as an entrepreneur, it really requires awareness and sensitivity and openness to that. And, you know, not easy because you're moving so fast. I think that's the hard part of being an entrepreneur is you're moving so fast that you're never given the time that you want to do something as fully as you'd like. But the other thing I'd say, and this is probably completely off topic, but I would say happy mom, happy family, happy work. And I have a lot of respect for young entrepreneurs who have young families. My children are grown. I think this is easier. And I have a lot of respect and I think it's hard really important to get that young energy and things like that. But I do think there's probably a ton of women beating themselves up out there about, you know, I'm not there enough for my kids or I'm taking too much time for work or, and to be honest, it all works out. <laughs> you know, if you're going about it the right way, you believe in what you're doing, you're creating the right structures and supports at home, it all works out. That's such a great message. Carla Small, that was a phenomenal conversation. I am so thankful for uh, you taking the time and sharing with us your thoughts and being as open and vulnerable. We touched in, in some very personal stuff, so thank you for taking the time. Some great messages for our listeners, and obviously I'm very interested in Early Bird. Even if I wasn't a financial investor, I'd say you know, best of luck with Early Bird because this is a really, really critical mission. This is one of those companies that can really change our culture in a very positive way. Um, if we can get that literacy rate up and we can sort of help those who have the aptitude but have not yet seen sort of the path or have the same uh, opportunities because of their own special ways of learning, it could have profound impact. So thank you so much for joining and sharing. Buddy, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation and I love that you're doing this podcast. Thank you. This has been The Fabric a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.